Hi, my name's Rob. I'm one of the ministers at Andover Baptist. And when I was a kid, I was fascinated by UFOs and the claims of people that aliens from another world had visited Earth from time to time. I remember reading accounts by individuals who claimed to have seen a UFO or even to have been abducted by aliens. And the question of whether we're alone in the universe was one that I often pondered. Having never seen a UFO for myself, I tried to make up my mind based on the testimonies of a few of the people who had claimed to have personally encountered aliens. Now, as I got older, I began to realize that there were a lot of problems with many of these stories. One of the main ones being how often when a UFO was seen, it was only seen by the individual himself and their story could not often be corroborated by anyone else. In fact, many of those who continued to claim that they'd been abducted spoke about how many people around them treated, as, treated them as if they had a mental illness. And that got me asking if they were treated that way by people around them because their claims were, were, were strange or because the people actually knew the individuals concerned, having lived with them in the same town for years. Perhaps they were actually mentally ill and there was no big cover-up or conspiracy taking place to silence them. You know, at the end of the day, unusual claims that people make are very hard to believe unless there are multiple witnesses to either the unusual event itself or the life of the person making the claim. If the people around them dismiss their claims as fantasy, it would seem to me a strange and naive decision to believe them without any real evidence. You don't require absolute proof to believe in something if there's loads of evidence. But in the absence of evidence like eyewitness accounts that corroborate a story, it's probably best to be skeptical. Maybe that's how you feel about stories that people tell about miracles. Maybe you're skeptical because you've never seen a miracle, and often those who claim to have witnessed one don't have much evidence to back up their claim. And if that's you today, or if that's somebody that you know, I just want to say I respect your intellectual integrity. The world is filled with fake news and conspiracy theories, and the more discerning we are about what we believe, the better. But a piercing question is, how would you respond when there is substantial evidence to back up a miraculous claim? Are you open to things that may not make sense to scientists yet, but for which there is still a lot of evidence? What if there were dozens of witnesses to a particularly mysterious event? What if there were over 500 witnesses? What if you saw something that made no scientific sense to you, but you were not the only one to see it? In fact, you were in a crowd of over 3,000 people who witnessed the event, heard the explanations given by those who called it miraculous, and actually came to the same conclusion as those claiming it was a miracle because the evidence being presented actually made sense. You know, on the day of Pentecost, Around 3,000 people suddenly converted to Christianity because of what they saw and heard. Peter, one of Jesus' original disciples, spoke to a vast crowd and managed to persuade them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, that's scientifically unexplainable, but Peter pointed out enough evidence to convince 3,000 people that he wasn't mad. And that was just one day in the ministry of the apostles who would go on to plant churches all over the world. Today, there are roughly 2.5 billion people who regard themselves as Christians. That's over a third of the population of the earth that actually believe Jesus was raised from the dead, even though science can't explain that claim. So why do they believe it? What evidence is there for the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead? 
Well, according to Luke, an early disciple of Jesus and the author of the book of Acts in which we find the story of the day of Pentecost, there were a number of pieces of evidence that persuaded the crowd to believe in the resurrection. And these same pieces of evidence are still a source of faith to millions of believers today. It all began with an event that required some explanation from Peter because at first it seemed to make no sense to the people in the crowd. We read in chapter 2 of the book of Acts that the 11 original disciples of Jesus and Matthias, the replacement for Judas, who had also been an eyewitness to the life and the ministry of Jesus, they were sitting in an upper room of a house when suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? So that's the context of Peter's speech. The unexplained ability of the apostles to speak in tongues and to be heard from people from various nations, each hearing the things that they said in their own language. Scientifically, there's no explanation for that. And we're told by Luke that this vast crowd of people was amazed and perplexed. The only explanation that some people could come up with was the idea that the people claiming to hear the apostles speaking in their native language must be drunk as a skunk. So Peter steps up to address the issue, and he starts, starts out by pointing out the fact that it's only nine in the morning. We read the story in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. And it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, listen carefully. Uh, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. In other words, there's no way that there would be that many drunk people at a Jewish religious festival for which they had traveled from far away to attend, especially not at nine in the morning. No self-respecting Jew would be drunk at nine in the morning, especially on a holy pilgrimage to Jerusalem on one of the most sacred days in the Jewish calendar, known as the Feast of Weeks, let alone a huge crowd of 3,000 people. So how were they to make sense of the miraculous ability of the apostles to speak and be heard by a crowd in multiple languages at the same time? Well, Peter begins to make a case for this miracle by referring to a prophecy uttered hundreds of years before that day by the prophet Joel. He says, no, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Now, here's the thing. Prophecy is something people often struggle to believe in. The idea that a person can be told by God about events that will happen far into the future is difficult to scientifically explain. But so is the fact that these prophecies came true. You may well not want to believe that a person can speak as a witness of things in the future, but it's hard to explain away the evidence that many of the things they described occurred exactly as they said they would. 
Peter says that this miraculous event is the fulfillment of Joel's prediction that in the future, in the days when God's Messiah was predicted to initiate the last days, God would pour out his spirit on men and women, young and old, in miraculous but very visible ways that might seem impossible to explain but equally impossible to deny. You see, there is evidence for the occurrence of miracles. It might not be scientific evidence, but that's not the only kind of evidence. Firstly, there's the circumstantial evidence, I guess you could call it, of prophets who witnessed miracles in advance of them happening and correctly predicted them. But then there's the historical evidence, the eyewitness testimony of everyone who actually witnessed the miracle. And whilst they wouldn't scientifically be able to explain it, they were convinced that something extraordinary had happened. Then Peter reminds the crowd that the life and the ministry of Jesus was marked by miraculous events like these. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You see, as difficult as these miracles were to explain, everyone in the crowd was well aware that Jesus had become famous because of his miraculous abilities. And Peter says that such miracles were the sign that God was accrediting Jesus as the Messiah predicted by the prophets of old. God's plan and foreknowledge of the events surrounding the life and the death of Jesus was now evident through the testimonies of the prophets, but also through the eyes and the ears of this very crowd. Peter points out the fact that many of the people in this crowd on that day were directly involved in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. They knew the stories. They understand and understood who Jesus claimed to be. And they themselves had rejected him despite the miraculous evidence of God having sent him. Now, what they were witnessing was further proof that they had got things drastically wrong and that God was showing them through these signs and wonders that Jesus was indeed the Messiah they had been waiting for. And now Peter drops the ultimate bombshell, a key piece of evidence that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. He says in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. You see, he claimed that he and the other apostles had personally witnessed Jesus having been resurrected. Just as David, Israel's most famous, famous king and prophet, had predicted what happened to the Messiah. So not only did the prophets foresee and predict the fact that the Messiah would be put to death and then raised to life again. Not only did Jesus himself predict that he would be raised from the dead, but here and now, the people who had been given these miraculous abilities to speak in tongues that could be heard by people in their own languages. These apostles were now attesting to the fact that they had all seen Jesus risen from the dead. Not one person, not two, twelve. Twelve people who seemed to have suddenly been given abilities that could not be explained by science and yet were visibly obvious. Twelve people whose eyewitness testimony lined up with the prophecies that were uttered hundreds of years earlier by some of Israel's most trusted prophets. And here's what happened. We read in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. 
and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people who were around during Jesus' life and ministry, many of whom had been in Jerusalem during his trial and crucifixion, and who had personally had a hand in his death, now accepted that the evidence was clear. Jesus had been raised from the dead by God, and these apostles had all witnessed it. The signs and the wonders and the words of the prophets all pointed to their testimony being true. And remember, many in the crowd would not have wanted it to be true. After all, it meant that they had, mis they had murdered the Messiah. It meant his blood was on their hands. It was a fearful thought to take responsibility for their actions. Yet that's exactly what 3,000 people did when Peter urged them to repent and to be baptized because they finally believed in Jesus. They confessed their sin before God. They asked God for forgiveness. They placed their faith in Jesus as their savior. And they were baptized in his name to symbolize their faith in the resurrected Jesus. These people weren't drunk. They weren't crazy. They were convinced. Having examined the evidence right in front of them, they believed that something that was scientifically impossible to explain had genuinely happened. And therefore they knew it demanded a response from them. You know, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is convincing and demands a response from everyone who examines it with an open mind. You know, there may be aspects of the Christian faith that you don't understand yet. Many stories in the Bible that seem strange or confusing to you. But Christianity isn't based on our knowledge or understanding of everything in the Bible. It's a response to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. A response to miracles that we may not have been able to explain, but which we can't deny happened because of the sheer number of eyewitness accounts recorded by people for whom the resurrection meant a new life, devoted to sharing their personal testimonies of how they had come to believe in Jesus. Of the twelve apostles, only one wasn't martyred, killed because of his faith. And he was imprisoned. Would you be prepared to go to prison or to die for something that you didn't believe there was genuine evidence for? Especially when the claim that you were making required people to believe in miracles, right? Would you be willing to claim that a man was raised from the dead, even if people thought you were mad or persecuted you for the rest of your life for your beliefs? That's what these original witnesses did. Not one of them recanted their claims or stopped believing and telling others that Jesus had been resurrected. And you know, the same horrific persecution is being faced by Christians to this day. According to Open Doors, every day in 2020, an average of eight Christians were killed for their faith. And 23 Christians were raped or sexually harassed for faith-related reasons. Every week, an average of 182 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. And 102 Christian homes, shops or businesses attacked, burned or destroyed. Every month, an average of 309 Christians were unjustly imprisoned for their faith. If you're watching this this morning and you're not sure what to make of Jesus, I want to challenge you to ask yourself why Christians are still prepared to face such persecution for their faith. I want to challenge you to consider the weight of the evidence that in the aftermath of the crucifixion led thousands of people to believe the accounts of the apostles on the day of Pentecost and billions to still believe them now in the year 2021. Billions of people believe today that Jesus was raised from the dead. And over 2,000 years ago, 
that happened. And they have had a life-transforming encounter with him in the here and now. Billions of people believe it's possible for God to forgive us for our sin and our unbelief when we are willing to accept the evidence and place our trust in Jesus to save us. You know, that's the difference between belief in Jesus and believing in stories like the accounts of people who say they were abducted by aliens. The volume of eyewitness testimonies from people who all saw and heard the same things at the same time. I don't believe that aliens have ever abducted anyone because the evidence is, is sorely lacking. However, I do believe that Jesus Christ was miraculously raised from the dead by God. I believe it because the evidence is overwhelming. And my own experiences with Jesus convince me that he is alive and active in my life. A dozen of his closest disciples, hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus alive, thousands who witnessed the miracle of Pentecost and who, having been personally involved in the trial and the sentencing of Jesus, were so convinced that he had been raised from the dead that they confessed their sins and converted to Christianity. And then there's the aftermath of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit who empowered these people to tell others what they saw and heard so that billions of people today have come to believe Jesus was resurrected. That's a lot of evidence. My question to you this morning is how will you choose to respond to it? You may choose to respond differently to me and I can understand and respect that as long as you've taken the evidence seriously. What I can't understand is when people make up their minds that Christians are crazy without ever having really examined the evidence that leads so many people to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's like a scientist coming to a conclusion without ever having looked at data from their experiments or never having studied the observations made by other reliable, educated people. In the aftermath of Jesus' crucifixion, the Christian faith did not die, but spread like wildfire across the world. Why? Were all these people gullible or uneducated? Can the spread of Christianity simply be explained by our psychological need to find meaning in this life? Or is there far more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than perhaps you should be comfortable dismissing? Whatever your preconceived ideas may be, what does the historical evidence suggest? And what response does it demand from us? Because evidence demands a verdict and a verdict demands a response. You may choose to believe the evidence for the resurrection or you may choose to dispute it. But the one thing it would be utter madness to do would be to ignore it completely. The events that happened in the aftermath of the day of Pentecost changed the course of human history in monumental ways. Shaping the foundations of the societies that we live in today. These seismic events demand our respectful attention because nothing that big happens without a significant catalyst. And I believe that catalyst was the literal resurrection of Jesus. And I believe it on the basis of loads of evidence, far too much to mention in just one talk. How much evidence is your faith or your lack of faith based on? If you don't know, you should find out. If you want to explore the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, I want to recommend you read a couple of books, one, one or the other. The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright is a, a fantastic book talking about exactly this subject.
And then we have Josh McDowell's famous The New Evidence that demands a verdict, which gives evidence for a whole host of Christian beliefs. Uh, evidence written by a journalist. So read it and make up your own mind based on the evidence that's being presented. That's all we're asking of you. If you're wanting to explore other evidence for the claims of Christianity, then you can join our Facebook community where we'll be posting more videos this week. I already posted one this week that talks about evidence for the resurrection, some other things that you might want to think about. But whatever you do, come to a verdict having looked at the evidence for yourself. Don't ignore it because it's the most important decision you could ever make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming and being with us in a way that we could understand, in a way that was tangible and visible so that people could hear with their ears, see with their eyes, even touch with their hands at the moment of the greatest unbelief, like Thomas, who just couldn't believe that Jesus could possibly have literally been resurrected until he could place his hands in the physical wounds on his hands and on his feet. And then he believed. Father, we know it's difficult sometimes for us to get our head around the way that you work. But if you exist and you created the universe, then raising someone from the dead is kind of child's play for you. So Lord, help us to start there. Help us to look at the evidence all around us and to make conclusions based on that. And I pray for anyone who's watching today who maybe has heard some evidence that they've not considered before and, and is interested in finding out more. Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that did these miracles on the day of Pentecost, you would begin a work of miraculous proportions in their life, leading them to see the evidence that's convinced so, so many people in history that Jesus really is who he says he was, the Son of God, resurrected, alive and well, and working in our lives today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.